Okay, Matthew 10. I promise we'll do more than one verse today. Um, you know, the topic, we're looking at Jesus, which is always a really good thing to do. Um, we're, we're looking at some of the episodes where Jesus is either speaking about controversy or you see him involved in controversy. And he's, in this section, he's sending the disciples out, and we're disciples. He's sending the disciples out into the world to do mission, and uh, he's telling them what to expect. So particularly in this section, he, he's, 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 he's teaching them to expect the world to not be very receptive. There'll be people who will receive It'll always be a minority. There'll be people who receive. It will go around the globe. Jesus promised that. Uh, the devil himself cannot stop the spread of the gospel around the world. He can hinder it. Uh, but still, it will probably be a minority that embraces the Christian faith. Um, so he's, he's telling them that. It's not going to be easy. He's, they're going to experience difficulty, and he's trying to equip them for that. Um, so part of what we can glean from this, just as we think about controversy in our life, is, again, have, have healthy expectations, have realistic expectations. Uh, this is part of life. Uh, this is part of life. So look at 10, chapter 10, verse 16, that verse we spent the whole day on last week. He is setting up the stage here. Behold, I am sending you out, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And um, um, that's important. He's going he's to kind of talk a little more about that, and he's going to illustrate that further. I, I think one of the things you need to glean from that, as wise as serpents, um, Glenn sent me an email after the class last week, and it, it was really helpful because it's the kind of stuff I love reading. Well, no, I don't love reading it. I spend a lot of time reading it. It's where I study culture. And we need to know culture around us. Uh, you've heard me, maybe, because I think I did it Sunday. One of the best authors, that's a pretty vague term, isn't it? One of the most influential authors out there right now who's writing about the situation that we find ourselves in, in this century, in this era in the West, is a guy named Carl Truman. And I think it's very ironic, his last name's Truman. Go get his book, um, his simple book, uh, This Strange New World. And he gives you a kind of brief overview of history that shows you how we got here and how this is not like other periods in Western civilization. Um, I think I summarized. Don't, don't let this keep you from getting the book. But I think I, because he wrote a big, thick academic book that, went all over the place, so his publisher said write a smaller book, it's very popular. Um, I heard him speak recently, and, and, and when he spoke, he, he sort of summarized uh, years and, and, and pages and pages of academic study. He's, he is a Christian, but he looks at culture, and he says the three things that we're dealing with in this culture right now is the new self that has been created, the new self that we like, that we publicize, that we promote, that, you know, it's just our, it's the, it's the modern view of human flourishing. It involves three things. It's very different from any other period in history. We don't, we don't like limitations. We don't think we should have any, except maybe ones we impose on ourselves. 
uh, but we think we you know no limitations. He says no no obligations. This culture does not like obligations. Duty is real old fashioned. Loyalty is never discussed. And the third big summary statement he made is um, uh, the culture that we have here in the West, the, the individual selves that are being promoted. Besides that, you know they they refuse limitations. They refuse obligations. They refuse. He caught well. A telos. They refuse a purpose that is imposed on them from outside themselves. You know, I mean, I I did ask a group yesterday, and some of them knew this. In the old shorter Westminster Confession of Faith from the 17th century, core Protestant theology, you know, is a catechism question and answer. The very first question, and I do encourage you to commit this to memory, the very first question in the catechism, what is the chief end of man? It's 17th century. So if you want to, what is the purpose of human beings? But in 17th century, what is the chief end of man? Do any of you remember, took if you were raised Presbyterian, you should know this. Do, you, do any of you remember the answer to that question? What's the chief end of man? Perfect. Thank you, Sarah. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Just kind of inscribe that on your brain as a Christian. Um, and by the way, the only, the only way we discuss that in the Christian community is, is that one thing or two things. I'm in the crowd that says it's really one thing. You glorify God forever and you be, you'll be enjoying God forever. Uh, glorifying God is the way we enjoy God, but that's our purpose. Well, again, we're in a culture that... If, if they have a purpose for living, it, surely isn't, it certainly isn't given to them from someone on the outside, like God. You know, all purposes are personal purposes. So we're in a culture now that doesn't like limitations, doesn't like obligations, and doesn't believe that they, can be, they, they are given a purpose that somebody other than themselves can define what human flourishing is. So, you know, if we're going to go to the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've got to have some concept of what we're encountering. I meant to print out the thing you sent me, Glenn. It, it, it talked about how, and we've known this for a year, like the, you know, I don't know if it's the first or the second largest category of people fill out surveys about religious affiliation for the first time in history. I think it's number two. Is it number two? Um, the second largest affiliation in this culture, is none of the above. The nuns. We've been talking about the nuns. And I'm not talking about the Catholic ones. I'm talking about the people that none of the above. So you're, you're going, you're going, you have to evangelize people that have no Christian memory. You know, I mean, I, you can't just say, well, like the prodigal son, you can come back. They don't know who the prodigal son is. Um, but we're in a culture, so yeah, being wise as serpents means that it's, you need to know the people you're evangelizing, the people to whom Jesus sent you. And again, we are, our culture is more like first century culture than we've seen in a long time. Um, we're, we're like Jesus' culture and Paul's culture. The world didn't know what they were talking about and didn't embrace them and were rather hostile to them. Well, we're back there now, if you don't know that. So particularly what Jesus says, but we've got to change expectations. Um, so Jesus helping us with our expectations. So look at the text. Uh, that's that's, that's the, kind of the theme verse there in verse 16, and we'll learn several things here. Beware of men... 
For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. I think I mentioned last week, see, he's telling you Jews and Gentiles. Synagogues, Jews, governors and kings, Gentiles. But notice what he says. You're going to be dragged before these people, hauled into court, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. You know, one of the things that, impresses me about Paul. You know, you read in his um, letters, like at the end of Romans, his passion, because he's taking the gospel to the world, his passion was to take it to the center of the known world, to Rome. And he did it. He, He was excited about doing it. But how did he get there? In chains. Yeah. He was, he, you know, when he was arrested and he could have been tried in Caesarea, He said, but I'm a Roman citizen, so just keep me in chains. And because I'm a Roman citizen, uh, I have the right to appear in Rome. That's how he got there. So, yeah, use these hard situations uh, to to witness. And, you know, even if you don't like getting chained and dragged to Rome, one of the things I think we all will agree on, I hope we all know this, people watch us. I think, particularly close when we suffer. If they know we're Christian, they watch to see how we suffer. Um, yeah, they watch to see how we suffer. So, you know, there, we have a lot of hard, bad opportunities to witness to our faith. So, you know, when you get dragged before these synagogues, governors and kings, and you're delivered over to them, um, it's a chance to bear witness for them. before them. Look at verse 19. When they, deliver, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak. Uh, give me another word for anxious. Yeah, most more modern translations just say don't worry. Don't worry. Um, you know, every time I look at that, I don't know why. It might be me. I, I know it says when you when they deliver you over, do not be um, do not be anxious. I almost did it again. What I what I think I want to read there is when they deliver you over, do not be obnoxious. <laughs> yeah, don't be anxious or obnoxious. Christians have an issue with both. Um, you know, uh, don't worry, don't be anxious or obnoxious about how you are to speak or to what or, or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Um, Let's talk about that a minute. You know, don't worry, don't be anxious. The Spirit will speak through you. Um, Now, this is my take on it, because I do a lot of speaking before people. Uh, I'm convinced, I've experienced it. it. I depend upon the fact that the Spirit will speak through us when we're witnessing for Christ. Um, I've spent 38 years depending on that. Uh, But at the same time, and this is where some people misread the verse. You know, I I know some people that read that verse and they think when it comes to like even witnessing in, in regards to like preaching sermons, they are really slack on the preparation side. And I always say to them, you know, Give the Holy Spirit something to work with. Um, so he's not saying, you know, don't be prepared. 
We spend our life being prepared. You're sitting here right now getting prepared. We spend our life being prepared. Um, if you ask my wife, and I love saying this because she figured this out long before I figured this out, because I heard her say this one day. Somebody asked her how long I, I, I spent working on that sermon that they just heard. You ask my wife that, you know what her answer will be right now? 38 years. <laughs> and that's the truth. Um, you know, I prepare, but, you know, and we all do it differently. But when, I, when I'm standing in front of people, I have prepared because I've given my life to this stuff, but I trust the Spirit. Um, yeah, I just, I'm not, I'm not, some of the greatest preachers in history have been manuscript preachers. Jonathan Edwards was a manuscript preacher. I'm not a manuscript preacher, and I'm not fond of listening to manuscript preachers. Some people can have a fully written-out manuscript in front of them and, and, and be a little bit more um, engaging to listen to than others, but it's, it's not my style. It's not the style that, that edifies me. And what that means is you do the preparation, and then um, you, when it's time to talk, just trust the Spirit to use that work. How many of you know, uh, I bet most, Tom Hagee, remember the name, Tom? I got to know Tom when I was here first time back in the 80s, and I'll never forget something I heard him say. And now, they won't tell you to do this in seminary, but I, this is good advice. Tom, somebody asked Tom one time, you know, how did he do his motivational speaking, how did he get ready to preach? And, um, and again, he spent his life preparing but the way he said that he got ready to go speak was he'd go in his study and he would sit there at his desk and think about it and pray about it until he got so excited he couldn't help but go talk about it. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's what I do on Saturday. I mean, if you invite me something late on Saturday night, I'm going to say no to you graciously. And by late, I mean any time after about 6 o'clock <laughs> p.m. Yeah, I don't do Saturday night stuff. I don't do Sunday morning stuff. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm getting ready for the football game. You know, and, and I'm not unprepared. I've prepared for 38 years, and, you know, and I, I'm in my study every morning by 6 a.m., but I don't write out a manual. I, I have to kind of trust the Spirit. Now, the downside to that is I've got to be in the spot to hear the Spirit while that's happening. You know, um, and it usually works for me. You know, um, if I just walk into the pulpit from, I can name a whole lot of, you know, hypothetical situations. If I walk into the pulpit and I'm not in the right place spiritually, then I might, I might just be standing before you discombobulated. But, you know, I, I, pre preparation, what I tell young preachers, and again, I believe in the study and stuff. Don't take it wrong. It's more important to have the preacher prepared than the sermon prepared. And um, you do your work. But at, that's why preaching is an event. It's not something you do on Wednesday and then give to people on Sunday. Preaching is an event. And, you know, and I'm saying all that to say this. I've learned over the years how frightening, because I'm going to encourage you to do this, how frightening it is, at least when you start doing it, it's somewhat throughout your how frightening it is to trust the Spirit.
You know, we, we want to, you know, for whatever reasons, public speaking or speaking to your family or speaking whoever, it can be a frightening, intimidating thing. And trusting the Spirit can be a little frightening too and, until you learn that He is good and He will show up. Um, so I think that's what Jesus is saying here. You know, be prepared. You know, because Peter said, um, be able to make a defense of your faith. You need to be ready to make a defense of your faith. You know, if you spend all your time reading Sports Illustrated, you're probably not going to be ready to make a defense of your faith. But throughout the Bible, you're told, make a defense, be, be, be available, be ready to make a defense of your faith. Uh, study to show yourself a workman approved with the Word of God. So preparation is important, but then you, 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 then you can trust. Um, Anyway, I, I suspect most of you have had experiences, and it usually comes looking back, where you look back over your life and you know that the Spirit was sort of speaking through you, working through you, and you were grateful. You didn't, you know, even expect that ahead of time. Any, any I'm curious, any example, do, do you, you ever experience that when you know it's not just, it's always you, because God doesn't want zombies, it's always you, but it's God speaking through you. It's God speaking through you. What, one of um, a good definition for a sermon or preaching is truth coming through personality. Yeah, I'm the one in the pulpit. Um, but it's not just me in the pulpit. And that's, that's true. Jesus has given us all that same promise. You know, whether you're in line at the grocery store and you speak, uh, the Spirit can help you do that. Now, you know, sometimes we're too frightened to even test that. Any examples from your lives? Yeah, Glenn, well, and then Joanne. I taught juniors and seniors in high school mm. for probably 40 years. And, you know, I would prepare significantly for lessons, but I don't know, I mean, every, every time I ever taught, there were two or three instances during the lesson that I guess it was always bringing to mind something that I'd heard in a lesson 20 years ago or 10 that I brought into the lesson um, that I didn't really prepare. I didn't prepare to do it, but it came to mind while I was teaching. Hmm. Well, you know, in, in, in uh, the Upper Room Discourse, in John 14, when Jesus is introducing the paraclete or the advocate or the helper, the Holy Spirit to us, he said he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said. So, um, you know, sometimes people tell me they forget everything they read. Not really. It's, it may be in there, and the Spirit can bring it to remembrance. So don't discount your intellect. The intellect's an amazing thing, and the Spirit can work through that. Joanne. I had a couple of things. I, I tutor at-risk at kids, and I wear a cross every day. Mm-hmm. It's just a part of who I am. And one of my fifth graders asked me about the cross and why I wore it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt like that was a moment, and there I'm sitting at Northwood Elementary Public School, this whole group of children here. So I had to take a moment to mm-hmm. you know, let, the, let the spirit move through me and um, explain why I wore a cross. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is um, my mom died in October, and mm-hmm. I was absolutely with her. I was there the moment she passed and that was a holy moment and I was talking to her 
and singing to her, and that was totally spirit. You didn't script it ahead of time. I mean, it's an amazing promise here. I, I encourage you to test this promise some in your life. Yeah, well, he, it's, it's a promise. There are a lot of promises in the Bible, but when they deliver you over, do not worry how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, um, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So, um, yeah. You, 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 you know, we all kind of dread some conversations. Um, I've got a whole collection of books, um, you know, titles such as How to Have a Difficult Conversation. Um, you know, we all dread difficult conversations, but um, we don't have to dread them too much because, the, you know, if our heart's in the right place and our motivation's in the right place uh, and our love is in the right place, the Spirit will speak through us. And it'll be okay. And we can have those hard conversations, even if it's before a judge. Can I tell you a funny story about a judge? Um, it makes me look really bad, but that's a funny story. Um, yeah, I went through a period in my life where I got way too many speeding tickets. Um, got two in one week one time. That was probably a record. Um, I've, I've, I've gotten more patient. I've slowed down a little bit as I've gotten older. Well, I got one as soon as I became a district superintendent over in Winston-Salem. I mean, I had 181 churches, five counties, 43,000 Methodists. I had places to go and things to do. Well, I got a speeding ticket um, right there in front of Baptist Hospital. Um, no, that was a different one. I got a speeding ticket. I got a speeding ticket going up 52. I was going to an early morning service up in Mount Airy. Anyway, I got a speeding ticket. Well, I had so many. And I've even been to the little, years ago, I went through the little, the little class where they taught me how to drive again. Um, you know, because insurance, you can only afford to pay so much for that stuff. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I said, I, I got, I'm going to fight. And while I was going to fight it over, I was going up 52. And if you go up 52, like toward Mount Airy, the, at least back then, speed limits go 55. It, it, it was 55, 60, 60 it, it changed. Well, and I do not like to travel in the blind spot of a transfer truck. So I was, was speeding up to get around that transfer truck. And it was early Sunday morning, me and that transfer truck, I think we're only two people on the road. So the highway patrolman needed something to do, and he saw me, and he stopped me, gave me a ticket. Um, so I'm going to go fight this ticket. Don't even really know what that means. It was a humbling experience. Have you ever gone to court to contest a ticket? It's a humbling experience. At least it wasn't Forsyth County. Because, you know, there's just a courtroom. You're in there with all the other criminals. And, you know, and when I say, you know, they won't really tell you when you, you may have to go sit all day, is what they told me in advance. But when I got there, I did discover um, uh, they let, you know, the, the lowly criminals like me go first, which was good. Well, when I stood before the judge, when I stood before the judge, is this, and I'm not being racist, this is going to come into play in a moment. It was an it was um, African-American female that came out on the bench. Anyway, when I stood before the judge, she didn't even let me, I was ready to make my defense. She just, as soon as I started talking, she slammed her gavel and said uh, something about my equipment and go pay the magistrate, and she was ready to go on to the real criminals. So I just stopped and said, Thank you, and I went and paid the magistrate. Anyway, I got back to my district office. My secretary said, how'd it go? And I said, well, it, um, 
it's quick, other than the humbly, humbly, humility of sitting there with all the criminals. It was quick. Um, and she said, who's your judge? And I said, I don't know, some African-American lady. And she said, well, I bet it was Judge so-and-so, who was United Methodist, who attends St. Paul Church. That's our big United Methodist church in Winston-Salem. And I said, well, it may be. And now, let me back up a second. When I became district superintendent, I, I love African-American worship. One of the first churches I went to right before I got that ticket and went to court was St. Paul's. Um, loved it. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I discovered that judge was in that church that Sunday morning. She knew who I was. Um, so so I, I'm telling my, my secretary this. I go turn on my computer, and it was the judge. I had sent me a note. District superintendent, it was nice having you in my court this morning. Um, which, I, that was even further humbling. But um, it's not easy to appear before judges. But me and the Holy Spirit had a defense, and she wouldn't even listen to it. I was going to tell her I was, in, I was concerned about my safety in the blind spot of that transfer truck. And I was going to do two churches that morning. I was, going to throw, just slip, I was just going to slip that one in to the judge. But anyway... I haven't gotten a ticket in a long time now. Um, anyway, so look back at the text. Verse, verse 21, and this gets hard. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated, hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. None is like conflict in the family. But Jesus said it would be this way. Again, we need to learn how to not worry, not be anxious or obnoxious, because we're not even going to agree as a family, whether that's in the church family or our biological family. And, um, you know, I see people get really shocked at... at, at serious disagreements in families and even in the church. Sometimes I see people who will give, give will, will accept more controversy and struggle and disagreement in their biological family than they'll accept in their church family. Like they expect church people to be better than their biological family. I don't care if it's your biological family, your church family, uh, relationships are hard. Because we're sinful people in a fallen culture. Relationships are hard. And, um, you know, I wish all my family was on, extended family, I wish, I wish we were all on the same page. Uh, we aren't. We aren't. I don't think that, you know, if we, were in a, if we were in a situation where much of the world is today, I don't think my family, even as even with as much as we disagree sometimes. I don't think they'd turn me over to the authorities of being Christian was illegal. But who knows? It happens all over the place, around the world. Um, I mean, I, I assume you know the people that hurt us most are those closest to us. Yeah. Um, you know, none of us like this. Um, brother would deliver brother over to death and father his child and children rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my namesake. Um, you know, this, this is one of those promises from Jesus we don't like. But it's a promise. And, and we just need to, 
again, temper our expectations. You know, that's why a lot of times I see people's behavior. And, um, you know, I might be saddened by the behavior, but I'm rarely ever shocked by human behavior. Sometimes we allow ourselves to get shocked by human behavior. And, um, you know, I can think of so many examples. I mean, let me give you two from history. Um, I don't know if I got any Civil War buffs in the room here. I kind of like studying the Civil War when I got some free time. The mountains of western North Carolina, where my family was living, um, my father was even born in, I started to say Murphy, but he wasn't born in Murphy. He was born in, um, ah, shoot, there's a little place, it's a suburb of Andrews. Suburb's not a good word. But anyway, he, my father was born up there in the hills. So my family goes way back in the hills. During the Civil War, you know, the mountains of North Carolina was just like the mountains of Virginia. You know, the mountains of Virginia seceded from the Confederacy and, you know, become West Virginia. Well, the mountains of North Carolina about did that because in the mountains, um, we had no plantations in the mountains. So um, the Civil War was a very divisive issue. And I know in my own genealogy, I've got great-grandfathers and one great-grandfather. Most, I have, I've got one great-grandfather that served in the Civil War because he had my, he married my great-grandmother when she was young, he was old. But most of them were great-great-grandfathers that served in the Civil War. I had them on both sides. And, you know, my great-grandfather who married my great-grandmother when she was like 27, he was like 65, he, did, he died in 1903. Um, he went over the mountain. When, when Tennessee fell, he went over the mountains and joined the Union Army. And um, my great-grandmother's father was, was in the Confederate. So the mountains, they really were brothers killing each other up there in the mountains. Um, you know, when I, when I served up in Franklin back in the 90s, and this is just a weird political statement now. When I served in the mountains up in the 1990s, I, I learned real fast there's more Confederate flags up there now than there was during the Civil War, <laughs> which that's a whole other issue. But during the Civil War, the mountains of West North Carolina was heavily divided. You know what the most pro-Union county was in the Piedmont? Randolph County. Yeah. Think for a second and tell me why. Quakers. Quakers. I mean, we've had times. You know, that's why when I hear a politician, this is the worst we've ever been. I'm like, did you forget the Civil War and we're shooting each other? You know, I mean, there have been times brothers have killed brothers, sisters have killed sisters. So it's not unheard of. Um, anyway, for religious reasons and for other reasons. Not, not, not fun, but it is. It happens, particularly in our culture when some of us, you know, the, you know, the younger generation, all young generations have been different from older generations. We're in a culture right now where this young generation is a way different from older generations. So we set, we've, set, we've set ourselves up for conflict. Anyway, uh, notice it says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not saved as in salvation. You're saved by faith. You're not saved by enduring as far as salvation, as far as heaven, as far as eternal life, as far as the kingdom. But he's just saying, if, you, if you'll endure, you'll, you'll get home before the dark. If you hang in there, it'll be okay. 
You'll get home before the dark. It won't be an, it won't be an easy path, but you, you'll get to the destination. Verse 23, when they persecute you. Notice he's not saying if. More people died for their faith in Christ in the 20th century than any other century since Christ worldwide. In the first two decades now of the 21st century, we are racing ahead of the 20th century. And a lot of it has to do with radical Islam. And uh, when I was in Rwanda, I think there was a, a, a mass slaughter of Christians in Nigeria. Um, so you'll notice Jesus doesn't say, if they persecute you in one town. It's when. Now we are still, and we see some of this, like if you read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, how persecution comes. First, they just don't understand you. Then they get a little hostile to you. Then they won't hire you for jobs. Then there's just social pressure. It usually keeps going. It usually keeps going. We have lots of evidence of this for the last 2,000 years. You know, first they throw a rock through your window, but before long they may be coming after you. So there's no guarantee. Any culture. Um, you know, those good German Lutherans in the 1920s could not have imagined the 1930s in Germany. And it wasn't just the, the, the Jews. Uh, a lot of Catholic priests. Uh, and, and Protestant clergy also who refused to yield to the, um, uh, to the Nazis. They became part of what was called the Confessing Church. They created the Barman Declaration in like 1934, and they said, this Nazi stuff is weird. Well, they said it better than that. It didn't end well for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a good Lutheran pastor who was martyred. So, you know, the people in the 1920s, Germany, they didn't see that coming. Germany was a brilliant, is, I guess, a brilliant country. Um, seed of the Protestant Reformation. But things change. Anyway, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. That's, that's, that's interesting for two reasons. One, he does say you don't have to just stay and die. Because we did have an issue in early Christianity, probably by the time the book of Matthew was written, that we so esteemed, and we still should, we so esteem Christian martyrs. Um, not quite like the Islamic world does. And here's the difference. We so esteem Christian martyrs. You know, the Te Deum, that great hymn that was written by St. Ambrose that gets sung in churches every now and again, traditional churches. It's part of my prayer book every morning. In the Te Deum, when it talks about who all should be praising God, one of the lines is, the white-robed martyrs in heaven are praising God. There's a special place in heaven for the martyrs, those who die for Christ. In the early church, we finally had to start saying to people, don't run, jump on the fire. It doesn't quite count. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are preachers saying, listen to Jesus. You know, when, when it comes, flee. You know, don't be masochistic or sadistic and try to make yourself a martyr. That's where we differ from some of the Islamic extremists. We don't embrace martyrdom. We don't go after martyrdom. But we've created a lot of martyrdoms. But, but we have this history. When the persecution comes, you can flee to the next town. Take your family, go away. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Um, this has always been an interesting verse for the last 2,000 years. He's telling these, at this point, it's the early Jewish Christian community in what is now called Palestine. It's early Christian community. He's saying, you know, when you persecute a fleet to the next town, you won't run out of towns. 
until, until the Son of Man comes. So we need to say, hmm, what does that mean? Uh, let me say two things about it. One, let's, do the, let's start with Son of Man. That is Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's used 80, time, 80 times in the New Testament. Son of Man. Now let's talk about what it means, because that's where I hear people kind of miss it a little bit. Son of Man, that phrase is based on Daniel 7. Daniel 7. When Jesus used it, everybody said, oh, you're referencing Daniel 7. Oh, you're using the phrase Son of Man because of Daniel 7. Well, before I tell you what Daniel 7 tells you, let me tell you what Son of Man does not mean. I hear some Christians say, well, Son of Man means he's human. Son of God means he's God. Mm -mm. Son Son of Man if you go back to Daniel 7, the way the Jewish community used it, go, go see who the Son of Man is in Daniel 7. And then you know why Jesus used that title more than any other title for himself. In Daniel 7, what you, what you read in Daniel 7 is about God, the Ancient of Days, God bringing about a new thing, bringing about his kingdom on earth. And in Daniel 7, the one who is to bring about God's kingdom is God's agent, and he's termed son of man. Son of man who comes from heaven, agent of God. He's the deliverer. He's the Messiah. He's the agent of God to bring about, son, to bring about God's deliverance. So when Jesus used the phrase son of man in this context, they, they'd all read Daniel was one of the best-selling books in Jesus' day. And we know that because of uh, uh, scraps of papyrus. Everybody's reading Daniel in Jesus' day. I think God was preparing them for Jesus and for Jesus saying, I'm the son of man. He's saying, I'm the one that God has sent into the world to set it right. I'm God's agent. I'm God's deliverer. So just notice how many times he refer- He's not being humble, and none of the Jews thought he was being humble when he referred to himself as son of man. Uh, both son of man and son of God got him in trouble when he used those titles. But of course, the more fascinating part of this is you would not have gone through all the cities until what happens? Well, then you have to kind of do some biblical theology. What does it mean for the Son of Man coming? Well, there's several options because usually in our mind, we think second coming. That's where our brain goes to. By the way, the phrase second coming does not occur in the New Testament, but the second coming is in the New Testament. Um, the, the second advent, the parousia, um, the, the, the manifestation, those are biblical terms, where Christ will return one day to finish his work. <clears throat> that is a coming. But there's other ways this is used in the New Testament. Even when Jesus speaks of the destruction of the temple, which did occur in 70 A.D. by the Romans, uh, 40 years after Jesus. He referred to that as a coming of the Son of Man. And what that was was the Son of Man coming in judgment on the Jewish people, allowing for the destruction of the temple. So coming means that also. Um, um, So it could be either. Um, It could be either. Uh, The people who are listening to Jesus say this, uh, probably, they didn't know it, but looking back, probably what Matthew means was, you know, by 70 A.D., by 70 A.D., 40 years after Jesus, uh, they, even at that point, they won't have gone through all the towns 
in what we would call Israel or what the Romans called Syria. And that's probably true. That's probably, so that's probably referencing the coming of man. Because particularly in Daniel 7, the coming of the Son of Man is all about judgment. And, you know, we see that at the second advent when he comes to judge the quick and the dead, living and the dead. But um, we also, we Christians wrote a lot, and it's in the New Testament. When, when Jerusalem got destroyed, yeah, that's sort of where we split from our Jewish brothers and sisters. Because when the, when, um, when the, when the temple got destroyed in 70 A.D., um, this is not good pastoral care. We looked at all those devastated Jews and said, don't worry about it. We don't need the temple anymore. We've got a new temple in Jesus Christ. And the church is the new temple of the Holy Spirit. So we had a whole lot of theology. That's why also, by the way, another reason we split from our Jewish brothers and sisters, when the Romans laid siege or the Romans were coming to lay siege on the temple in 70 A.D., you know what most Christians did? We left. You know, they tell us we went to um, Pella. We went, they tell us because the Jews would never get over it. We left. Because, again, we had a theology that said we don't need animal sacrifice anymore. We don't need a physical temple anymore. Um, the Lamb of God had... So we left. Well, that did not endear us, our Jewish brothers and sisters. And they have not got over it. You know, one of the things, if you're going to do New Testament study and understand the Jewish faith... The destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., 40 years after Jesus, which we said, see, you should have received Jesus. That didn't endear us to our Jewish brothers and sisters. But the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. for the Jewish community was like, like 9-11 on steroids for us. That was the center of the world, center of their faith. You know, they, they, they stopped doing animal sacrifice. They had to reinvent Judaism after. So that destruction of the temple, and that's why, particularly in Mark's gospel, the destruction of the temple is in the background of what you're reading. Because that was so traumatic. You know, I'm sure there's some Christians that stayed around, but we basically did not have a good theological reason to stay around. Um, our... our, 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 our our loyalties were with two groups. Our loyalties were with the Jews, but our loyalties were with the Jews who were saying, don't fight Rome. Our loyalties were not with the Jews who fought Rome and caused the temple to be destroyed. So, you know, again, when you read the New Testament, both, you know, the second coming and God's judgment on the Jews through the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., uh, are both in the background of the text. So that's why that's, that may be why he's talking about here, when they persecute you for, in one town, flee the next. For two, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Because um, it was only 40 years till, till the judgment of God um, came on the temple. Um, this is a good place to stop. Any comments about that? Uh, one of the things Christians, by the way, one of the things Christians, by the way, need to study is more about the temple. I mean, Jesus is a walking, talking temple. That's the way he's presented in the New Testament. We don't go to the temple to get forgiven now. We go to Jesus to get forgiven. Yeah, the temple, to understand the role of Jesus, you need to know more about the temple and what the role that played um, in, in, in Judaism. Um, and I think you need to understand the trauma.
Um, by the way, just as an aside, just to help you understand modern Judaism, you know, Judaism in the Bible, that's why biblical Judaism and modern Judaism are two things. In the Bible, Judaism is around animal sacrifice. You had one temple. It was there in Jerusalem. You did animal sacrifice. If you, at all possible, you went to Jerusalem from all around the world, but it gets destroyed. Well, then what, what they only have left are the synagogues, which are like community centers. And they were scattered. You, you heard synagogues referenced in verse 17. There were synagogues scattered all around the world. Synagogues popped up when they were carried into exile. So synagogues are like Jewish community centers. That's what they were originally, Jewish community centers. Well, all of a sudden the temple's gone. Animal sacrifice is gone. So the only thing they have left is synagogue. So the Jewish faith, literally, the people who survived went, um, went to um, northern Galilee, and they said, okay, how are we going to be Jewish now? We have no temple. We can't do animal sacrifice. So they, they created a religion based on three things. And animal sacrifice, I guess you notice animal sacrifice is not one of them now. Their religion is based on three things, Torah study, and these three things happen in a synagogue and come out of a synagogue. Torah study, uh, deeds of mercy, kindness, loving, good works, um, and prayer. And that's what you do in the synagogue. You pray, you study Torah, and hopefully you, as a Jew you're doing. That, those became the three pillars of Judaism because animal sacrifice went away. Um, the Jewish community is divided, and I'll tell you how to see this. They're divided as to whether or not animal sacrifice should ever be reinstituted. Um, you know, we're in the world of PETA today and animal sacrifice. Can you imagine? Um, but, you know, very, very Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews, you know, they want another temple built in Jerusalem. Um, and they'll risk a world war with Islam to get the Dome of the Rock off Temple Mount. But they want to build another temple in Jerusalem. Uh, they want to reinstitute animal sacrifice. Some actually literally want animal sacrifice. They are, they've already learned how to raise new red heifers to sacrifice in the temple. Some of those uh, Orthodox Jews say, okay, no animal sacrifice, but we'll do burnt offerings like grain and wheat. But so you have a branch of very, very conservative Judaism that wants to rebuild the temple. You've got a branch of more modern, reformed Jews who says, no, that's going backwards. When we moved away from the temple and created a religion of Torah study, prayer, and almsgiving or um, deeds of mercy, that was a step forward. So they would say, going back to a piece of property in Jerusalem and offering animal sacrifice or even grain offering, burnt offering, is a step backwards. So that's pretty much reformed Judaism. That's why... When you drive around, you'll see synagogues. Some of them will be named Temple something. Some of them will not. Some will be named Beit something. Beit David. Beit just means House of David. Reformed Judaism tends to name their synagogues temples because they don't want to go back and build another one. Because that's a more modern branch of Judaism. They don't want to go back and build another one, ever. They certainly don't want animal sacrifice. But the more Orthodox Jews, they don't call their synagogues temples because they still yearn for the temple. And that's why, what's the last thing they say at the Passover Seder meal? Next year, Next year in Jerusalem. Yeah, that's more conservative Judaism. But that's, how, that's why you see synagogues named differently because they disagree over, you know, Orthodox Jews say they go to Jerusalem, they've done made furniture. There's some groups who have already made furniture. 
Um, the, new, the new menorah that will go in the temple is already, is already there at the Western Wall. It's huge. So some groups have already made it. And uh, more, more moderate or reformed groups of Judaism, they, they, they don't want that. Um, one of the reasons is they, they know what may happen. It, yeah, there's an there's a Islamic shrine on the Temple Mount right now. That's problematic uh, about building the temple. Anyway, any comments, questions? Um,